0: Welcome to episode 168 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week my guest is Caroline Walsh. She served in the U.S. Coast Guard and joined in 2009. She graduated from college and the recession was happening and she couldn't find a job chose she followed a few of her friends to the recruiting station, and decided to join the Coast Guard. And we talked about what her experience was like. She planned to work in intelligence, but it took over three years before she actually got to go to intel school. And for the first three years, she was at a small base in New York doing whatever was needed to help meet that mission. I think this is a great episode to talk about how joining the Coast Guard is different than a lot of the other branches. Usually your school happens right after basic, but the Coast Guard has a different situation where you go to your basic training, then you go to a base and wait for your tech school to happen. And so her experience where it's supposed to be six months to a year, but that turned into three years, really changed the whole experience of being in the Coast Guard. Before we get started with this week's episode, I want to thank Sabio Coding Boot Camp and USA Girl Scouts Overseas for supporting this week's episode of Women of the Military Podcast. Savio Coding Bootcamp is a top-ranked coding bootcamp that is 100% dedicated to helping smart and highly motivated individuals become exceptional software engineers. Visit their website at www.sabio.la to learn how you may be able to use your GI Bill of Benefits to train at Savio. Your tuition and monthly BAH stipend may be paid during your training period. They are also 100% committed in helping you find your first job in tech. So don't forget to head over to www.sabio.la to learn more. USA Girl Scouts Overseas Virtual Troop is a great way for girls to learn new skills, meet girls from all over the world, and have fun no matter where they are or where they move. Adults can also volunteer with Girl Scouts, and it is such a great way for adults to continue to learn and meet new friends. Volunteering is easy and can be done by just giving seconds, minutes, or hours each week to help support Girl Scouts. USA Girl Scouts Overseas has many fun activities and ways to stay engaged for girls K-12 through and for their adult lifetime members. You can learn more about joining or volunteering with USA Girl Scouts overseas by heading to their website, usagso.org. That's usagso.org. And now let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome to the show, Caroline. I'm excited to have you here. Thanks for having me, Amanda. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? So I joined the Coast Guard after college. I graduated with my undergrad in
1: psychology and it was 2009 and the economy had just tanked. And I really mean, part of the reason was I, I didn't have a plan. I didn't have an idea of what I could do for work. So a couple of my friends who surfed and played soccer had met a Coast Guard recruiter And they they told me about this option and they started explaining the Coast Guard and how, you know, we could serve, we could learn skills, you know, we could kind of start in a career direction we were interested in and and jump right in if we enlisted. So that's, that's what initially brought it to my attention. I didn't grow up with a military family or a Coast Guard family. It was kind of like a very convenient and interesting opportunity that just kind of landed in front of me. So I looked into it. as was a little bit skeptical. The Iraq war was going on. And my mom, of course, was convinced I'd somehow in the Coast Guard get sent to Iraq or go to war. And that, you know, that was not my intent. So, so I definitely looked into it. And I was a little more skeptical than my two friends. And kind of at the last minute, was like, you know what, this is, this makes a lot of sense. I can articulate why this would be a good career, education and like life move, especially given the economy at that time.
0: Yeah. And so you already had your degree. Did the recruiter ever mention anything about like an officer path or anything like that? He told us about the officer path, but it was not
1: guaranteed and it wouldn't get started until months later. So the enlisted path, like we graduated in May and we went to boot camp in June. So the officer path was going to be, you know, longer application, letters of references, like a huge packet and then interviews. And that could be months down the road. So uh, we, we got a, a signing bonus for having a degree, which helped. But yeah, we, we were just ready to dive into something.
0: Yeah. And you guys were like, there's no jobs. And what am I going to do for those months while I'm waiting? And then what if it doesn't work out? And then I have no options. I end up enlisting anyways. That makes a lot of sense why you would consider it, but then ultimately decide to enlist. What was it like to go to basic training? Because you weren't 18 because you had already graduated from college. So you had a different, I would say, life experience than some of the younger recruits, or was it more of a mixed bag of different ages?
1: Our class was
0: probably more
1: mixed than the usual classes. I think because the economy had taken this turn, there were a couple more people with degrees who had enlisted that were, yeah, we were like 22, 23, uh, had lived on our own a few years. so. And especially with the psychology degree, I felt like I could take a step back and be like, okay, how do I play this game and like just get to the end of it? It was still very stressful, especially the first few weeks. I didn't grow up watching military movies. I didn't know you get off this bus and just get screamed at for every little thing. So there was still a shock value to it. But overall... We kind of flew under the radar because, you know, we knew how to take care of ourselves on our own and we surfed. So we kind of knew how to handle like stressful situations and had been under, you know, deadlines for finals and everything already. So I'd say we flew under the radar a little bit, but still got the the boot camp experience out of it.
0: Yeah. And then after you graduated boot camp, did you go to your first assignment or did you go to your tech school?
1: I went to my first assignment. The Coast Guard has a strange system where if you don't get a guaranteed A school from your recruiter for schools that really need people right away, you go to your first unit and you you kind of do the grunt worth. It's supposed to be like six months to a year of just learning what the general Coast Guard is like. So that's what I did. The their budget was also behind with all this financial stuff going on, so it's supposed to be six months to a year. I ended up being at the, my first unit for three years, just getting qualified and everything I could and I started my master's degree and everything so yeah I was in a strange situation where I didn't go to the intel training for a while and
0: that's crazy because I knew that about the Coast Guard because I had interviewed a few people but to be in that like limbo status for almost your whole enlistment <laughs> period is crazy. They're like you're like I'm about to get out and they're like we're going to send you to school and you're like uh okay. So what was that like because when you're going through that like limbo status usually you're doing like the jobs that nobody wants to do and I haven't really heard people be like, and it was the best time ever. I just wish I had done that longer. So can you talk a little bit about some of those experiences in those three years and what, what that was like? Sure. Yeah,
1: so I ended up at a small boat station in Montauk, New York, which is way out at the end of Long Island. So it was a high, an isolated unit. So I was really there doing Exactly what that station needed, which was it was kind of like being a firefighter. We did rescues, we sat on the radios and listened for distress calls. We did heavy heavy weather, so we had like these big forty seven foot boats that you know would roll over if needed, and the seas, which you know thankfully they didn't while we were there. But they're just you know they're made for that intense weather. So job wise, I got qualified as the boat crew. So the training on two of the boats, and then slowly as it Kind of was like, okay, you're going to be here for a while. So, training wise, I, I did the boarding team training, which is like our law enforcement training, so we could do some of the boardings. Um, and then, outside of a career, just life wise, it was a very strange place to be. The first unit I went to personally was like a very toxic unit, too. So, it made a difficult situation even more difficult. So, that really affected me. You know, when I when I started looking at the future of my career, seeing like not only how like the Coast Guard treated me and how like I just was on this path that I did not even plan to be on, but also kind of dealing with the organization and some of its problems.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you said you went to Intel school. So like the whole time that you're in that three year limbo period, which you don't know if it's gonna be another six months. Like when you got there, you're like, oh, six months, and then a year goes by and you're like, oh maybe in six months I'll move. And you're in this like limbo doing something that you didn't expect to be doing because you signed up to do Intel, which was very different. So I'm sure like toxic leadership, not doing the job you were planning to do and being on a remote location, all those things like really probably had a major effect on your mental health and just your overall experience. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. The mental health, I think for me, like I, it definitely did looking back, especially like I knew at the time that it was a stressful situation. But even looking back and seeing my habits and how stressed out I was, I would go for a really long run every day before work just to like get myself kind of numb for the work day. And then, same in the evening, our work days. If there wasn't rescue going on or training, our work days would end, you know, around three or four. And so, like, I would do another run and just, yeah, I just kind of wanted to remove myself from what I was doing. So, yeah, definitely a lot of stress, a lot of, yeah, personal isolation, a lot of, you know, that was the coping mef- mef- mechanism I knew. And I think, I mean, now I've learned other ones that I could have used, but it was kind of just year 22, 23, you know, you're using what you know to get through it.
0: Yeah, that just sounds so challenging. Do you have any stories from the time that you were there that kind of can encapsulate like some of the challenges that you have? Sure. So, yeah, I just published a book, Fairly Smooth Operator, My Life
1: Occasionally at the Tip of the Spear, that has a couple stories in it that outline some of the struggles. I think the main one for me, so part of the problem with the unit was there were very few women, there were no women in leadership positions. And so I had nobody above me where I could go and be like, Hey, I don't, this doesn't seem right. Can you Tell me if this is right. Like, I know we're in this like hierarchy and it's the military and I have to do what I'm told. For example, so one of the supervisors, the way he would communicate was through text message about some of our rounds and our watches. And so, you know, I would get a text that's like, hey, you have the 2 a.m. round. And then I would get a text that was something like inappropriate about what I was wearing that day when I came into work. And so, like, obviously that is like not a healthy thing to be involved with. But for me, even if I had the, you know, courage to tell somebody, who is I gonna tell? People were buddies with this this person who's sending it. You know, I even had a boyfriend at the time, and I told him about it. And he's like, you know what? If you bring it up, you're just gonna cause problems for yourself. You're gonna disrupt the unit, and it's it's not even like it's an inappropriate action, but it's like barely over the line. So like, you know, there might not even be a removal of somebody from the position, like you might just cause yourself more stress. So a lot of bad advice, and really nobody to check in with to, to figure out like you know where's the line, and how do I even respond to this? I've I've never even been in the workforce, let alone like a workforce with a really strict hierarchy, let alone like a toxic workforce with a really strict hierarchy. That was probably that was like one really challenging part.
0: Yeah, and I served around the same time as you, 2007 to 2013, and with all the stuff that's going on, the NDA and the changes they're trying to make for the sexual assault and like getting it out of the chain of command when I was in, it was just kind of like, that was the advice you were given. Like you can say something, but it's probably going to cause more harm for you than good. So just ignore it. That's the advice that I was given. And you didn't even have like a female officer to go and talk to about this, but it sounds like you got similar advice, but that was like the culture of the military and the way that the military, they're trying to change it so that you can't have chain of command leadership dealing with that. And I think that also had, like you said, people like this guy and he's saying, and then you're a new person and they're like, oh, well, she's just complaining, blah, blah, blah. And then nothing gets done and it does make life harder. I don't think people really thought about like how that, like not saying anything was really hard on women. And we just, we didn't say anything. So no one knew what was going on. And now people are talking about it and it's changed a lot of the culture hopefully for the better. And I think things are changing, but that was just the way it was. And like, that's not like way back in the 60s, like in the 2010-ish area, that was, it wasn't until after I got out that things started to change. I would say only the last, Maybe five years at the most. Yeah, it was not that long ago. And yeah,
1: I noticed the change too at the end because when I was finally getting ready to leave the Coast Guard and like move on, I got a phone call from our investigative service that actually the person that was bothering me at that unit had actually like physically assaulted somebody. And so they were calling and checking in with everybody who had been at that unit to see if he had been inappropriate. And I was like, well, yes, actually. And I told my story. And so It was like terrible that it had to get to that point where this person finally had some action against him. But at least I could see the change where the the investigators I talked to were incredibly dedicated to reaching out to every single person and just hitting this person as hard as they could because they deserved it. He ruined at least one person's career. And I mean, that kind of activity definitely turned me off from re-enlisting. So yeah, the impact on on even like your career and your trajectory from that behavior is, is pretty wild.
0: Yeah. So is there anything else from that time before you went to school that you want to highlight that we didn't cover so far? I think
1: that's it. I mean, yeah, there were hard times. There are also, I mean, there were some fun times. Like, you know, we had one adventure where – we were just minimum boat crew, we went out really far for a rescue. And, you know, I got seasick. And then like my seasickness made somebody else seasick. So then they're down to two and like the two people that were were left on that crew, like they are just really great people. And they did everything themselves. So like, as much as like struggle as there was, like there really are also some really incredible and dedicated people,
0: you know, at those units and working with you. Yeah, there are good people and there are bad people and and we try and focus and remember, at least I try and remember the good things and not the bad things, but it's still important to talk about the bad things so that people can know what happened and then change for the future. Definitely. I'm in the PhD program and I just finished a paper about
1: how you make those big organizational cultural changes and looked at the Coast Guard and looked at some of the different frames and how they'd been fixing problems, like just with policy. And it's kind of like, okay, like what else can you do? So actually having that experience, it's, you know, you can, you are empowered to dig in and figure out how to actually make these changes.
0: Yeah. And we need people who've experienced that to speak up and advocate for change so that change can be made because unfortunately, like if you go through a bad situation, like that sucks, but then it also gives you the power to advocate for change for the next generation of women. so you finally got to go to school after being in for three years. What was that experience like? Yeah, I got to Intel school,
1: uh, I was in New Yorktown, Virginia. I mean, I was so happy just to finally be at that next step. Like, you know, I joined with my psychology degree. So I was really interested in Intel and like interviewing or analysis. So I was stoked to be there. And at the same time, I was probably a little bit salty or disgruntled. I lost a lot of points in the training because like my shoes weren't shined enough. And, you know, the course content was great, but I was just... So like maybe burned out or over some of these things where I was like, do I really owe the Coast Guard my shiniest shoes? Like I, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying here. I like the job. I like the position. But yeah, I was like a little bit tired at that point. But it was, a, it was a really it was a great training. It was, you know, people were, you know, a little bit more professional because it is an office job. So, yeah, I felt like I was finally with like a, the cohort I was meant to, to grow with in the Coast Guard.
0: Yeah, it's kind of interesting because I know that the Air Force and I think the Army too, you, instead of joining the military right away, you wait until your school opens and then you go to basic. And then usually right after there's like a week or two, and then you go to your tech school. And so you're kind of still like, I mean, you're in that boot camp mindset where you have to have everything squared away. And it's been three years for you approximately. You're just kind of like, I'm totally over this. <laughs> like, it's kind of interesting how they're like, you have to be like in this mindset. You're like, I've been in for three years. I don't care anymore. The way the Air Force does it, it's the one I'm most familiar with is you go to basic and then you go to tech school and tech school isn't as intense as basic, but it's still pretty intense. But you have just gone from basic training. So it's not like you went to the unit, everything was relaxed and chill and you just did your job and then you went to it's, it's just really different. Yeah, yeah, it's like if I went to, I
1: went to boot camp and then just started my job. And then three years later, it's like, okay, back to like a, a quasi boot camp. So right. The good thing is most of us had been waiting that long. So I wasn't like an anomaly in the group. we were all like, really like, okay, like, let's do this. Like, we can get through this however many weeks and just get on to our next unit. So.
0: So you went through training. And then where did you go after that? So after that, I
1: went, this was like such a great unit. I went to Joint Interagency Task Force South, which is a counter drug unit in Key West, Florida. And it had all the military service branches. It had most of the three-letter U.S. agencies. And then it had liaison from the countries that we were working with in Central and South America. So it was just like a very unique, very collaborative intel unit. And so we would aggregate a bunch of information from all these agencies and put together cases, then put the ships and the planes and just plan the counter-narcotics operations all over the region. It was fascinating. It, it gave me an insight into the different cultures. So I, I have some of my best friends are in the Air Force, the Marines. So it's just cool to compare your experiences and cultures and come together and use, you know, your strengths and, and, you know, get through the late nights and also like do a great job with what we did.
0: Yeah, that sounds really interesting. And it was what you wanted to do. And was it a, a bigger unit? It sounds like there were a lot more people than your little tiny unit. in you said New York, right?
1: Right. Yeah. New York was like 30. This had with, you know, civilians and military, like in the hundreds, I would guess. Or yeah, so it was, yeah, it was a big task force. And we had people overseas too that we connected with and worked with. So it was just, yeah, very, very cool organization.
0: And how long
1: were you there? So I was there, I had to extend my contract from four to five or so years because that's what I needed to do to get to the Intel training. So I did two years there before I had to make the decision about whether I was going to re-enlist.
0: And you decided not to re-enlist,
1: right? I did. I decided, you know, to go to the reserves as a bit of a safety net. And also, I liked, I mean, I liked Intel. And, you know, by that time, I had appreciated the, you know, the Coast Guard service. So yeah, I went to the reserves, I submitted my officer package, so I could be a Coast Guard reserve officer and go to their reserve officer training. Part of the reason was thinking back to that toxic unit and thinking back, like, what if I ended up somewhere like that for four years? You know, I was still only in E5 at that point. So I really didn't feel like I had a lot of the positional power, you know, if I was at another bad unit. So I decided the reserves was safe. It also gives you a way to get back into active duty if the civilian world isn't working for you.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And I think that is like one of the big challenges with like being in the military when you don't really have a lot of say, you don't really have any say on like where you're going to move. And if you get moved to a toxic unit, it's not like you can be like, I'm gonna put my two weeks notice and quit. It's like I have to be there until my time is up. And it's years, not weeks or months. And it, it can really drain your mental health. So that makes sense. You were able to put your packet in and then switch to officer when you did the reserves.
1: I did, yeah. I spent a couple months enlisted intelligence specialists in the reserves, and then my interview and everything went through. So I think it was probably six months or a year. That all that time really there was so much movement, you know, when you get off active duty, and you're moving and you're applying for jobs. So like, I can't even think of the exact timeline, but I did, I got into the reserve officer program, which for us, it's a three week program, it's meant for people who are either in another service or in the Coast Guard, and you you get the military life, you've been through boot camp. So it's like, it's more of a leadership course. Um, So that was perfect for me. Again, I made like a lot of really good friends there that we stayed connected through on um, the next couple of years of our reserve time and swapped stories and strategies and leadership stories. So, yeah, that was that was a great move. I felt really good after that training and I felt like, you know, I might be at the bottom of the officer hierarchy, but at least if something's going on with, you know, some of the enlisted people, I can at least make sure that that's a good environment for the people that are working for me.
0: I love how you were like focused on giving back and protecting the people underneath you and like that was your big driver it shows a lot of your character and like why you joined and why you're doing what you're doing now. And so that's really, that's really cool. Thanks. I was lucky too at Drive
1: South. There were women in leadership at that point. So I got to see what that can look like. And one of our, she was just like a very badass Coast Guard helicopter pilot. And she started a women's networking group where we would get together and just, you know, men and women could join, but we'd casually talk about women's issues and just get to know each other outside of uniform. And the fact that somebody at that high level, you know, was open to, networking with everybody was it was a really really cool and a really awesome like leadership example
0: yeah that does sound really cool so what was the transition like to like you you mentioned that like you were moving you're applying for jobs and like everything was going a little bit crazy so I wanted to kind of go back to that time of leaving active duty and going into the reserves but also like finding a job it had been five years so it was 2014 ish so what was that experience like that was stressful. I mean, I felt like I was pretty set up for success. just
1: I had you know my security clearance active. I had by then I had finished my master's degree online from Penn State, so I had like the qualifications I had good experience, but it was difficult. There was no way I was talking to Intel contractors. I was looking at government jobs, and nothing was gonna align with that end of duty date so. It was definitely stressful. I made the leap. I moved in. I was lucky my sister lived near Washington, D.C., so I moved in with her. You know, so I didn't have to worry about rent. I could drive into DC for these job interviews where there's a lot of jobs for military veterans. So I felt like even I was in this like really lucky position. And even with that, you know, I didn't have kids or a, a spouse who was relying on my income. And even being in that pretty perfect position, it was just stressful because you lose your peers that you're seeing every day. You know, they're still active duty, they don't know what you're going through. And then just it's your first time having to like apply for these jobs and do job interviews. And that itself is stressful. And then you, sometimes you get to a point point, you're like, am I ever going to even get a position? And, you know, you're kind of just Telling yourself to be confident and keep going, even though you don't know what's going to happen and what when you're going to finally land something. So it gives me a lot of empathy for that transition process for anybody going through it.
0: Yeah. And what advice would you give to someone if they were listening right now and they were going through that and like they've been trying to get a job, they've been going to interviews and they can't seem to find one?
1: Bred a wide net, I think, is like my was my What helped me out was just applying to all kinds of things and seeing what took. Um, Ultimately, my first job came from a friend of a friend of a friend who knew somebody who had a small contract company who was looking for somebody with Homeland Security experience. So aside from just applying also reaching out and telling people like, I'm looking for jobs, you know, just have two or three sentences, send that email to like anybody who you think might have some connections. You know, I think the reserves is a great tool because it was a reserve friend who initially started me with that connection. So people who who know what you're going through and and who are not afraid to reach out for you. So I I would say those two things.
0: Yeah, the Veteran Network is really good at helping like connect people with different jobs and especially like veterans have gone through it. So they know what it's like and they're willing to do what they can to help people. So I think that's really good. And I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, but now you're a PhD student. Why did you, you have your master's, you sounded like you were doing the reserves and you had a job and, but now you're going back to school again to get your PhD. Why did you decide to do that?
1: I had About five years, yeah, working for the government in DC. And I think that sometimes for some people transition is longer than that first job. So, you know, I had the government jobs and that gave me, you know, my civilian experience and that continued to build my skills and I guess I kind of realized, you know, it was five years and it was great, but it was also just kind of like a landing point for me. And when I had a deployment for my reserve unit, I went to Guantanamo and I was deployed for six months and it was really pretty boring a lot of days. And so I had time to read and reflect and look forward again and think through like, what did I actually want to do? Like, okay, I was doing this Intel thing and I could do this and I could make money. But like, what do I enjoy doing? And what's interesting to me? And I always kind of wanted a PhD. I just it's in my family. So it, it's kind of like something we like to think deeply. And like, <laughs> you know, we're very like analytic. So it was just something that's always been in the back of my mind. And I finally had time to just be like, yeah, I have the GI Bill. Like I earned this time to, you know, take another leap and like really figure out what my passion is, not just what can I do for work.
0: I really love that because I feel like, my background is in engineering, and I'm a podcaster. But like, I didn't want to do engineering for a long time. People were like, "But you have an engineering degree," and I was like, "But I don't like doing it." And they're like, "But you have a degree," and I'm like, "But I don't want to do it." And I ended up starting my business and like I'm following this path. And I felt guilty at first when I first started doing it because I was like, I do have my degree and like women in STEM is like a big deal. And like, maybe I should do engineering, but I didn't like it. And I think a lot of times the military, like you get training and like doing Intel or you get a security clearance or whatever the case may be. And you're like, oh, well, I have to do this. And people don't think like, do I enjoy doing this? Do I want to do this? And I think it's good. I mean, it sounds like it was boring to go on the deployment, but it also gave you time to think and figure out what to do next, where you kind of had to slow down and think. And then you were like, I'm going to do what I want to do. So that's awesome. I think that's great. Thanks. I definitely
1: have to credit the Armed Service Arts Partnership, which is the nonprofit I'm involved with. So, after that deployment, I got involved in their DC chapter doing comedy and, like, something about, you know, I'm not trying to be a comedian, but something about just getting into the arts just opened up my mind to other possibilities and being a little more creative with how I want to, um, you know, make money and what my career should be. So I think, yeah, like the time and also like some of these nonprofit organizations are really pretty cool for veterans and a great resource
0: yeah we'll link to them in the show notes because my I have two friends who invited to me to when they did like their comedy thing and it was really fun to go and see them being funny when they're like professionals and I was like you guys don't ever act this way and so it was really fun and it does it opens up a different part of your brain when you're being creative rather than being like technical and doing your job so That's really cool. So, I'll link to them in the show notes so that people can look for them. And I'll also link to your book so that if people want to go check it out, they can grab it there. And I have one last question, which would be what advice would you give to young women who are considering military service? I would
1: say definitely when you join, like figure out your allies, be an ally to other women that you're working with. You know, some women join and they have a great experience and they just end up at great units and everyone's professional. But I think like, be aware that like, you might need to stand up for yourself and you might need to reach out to somebody above you or at another unit. And you might need to just check in on, you know, other people's behavior and, you know, speak up if something is not right, because chances are that person, you know, is going to be bothering other people than just you. So I think yeah, like create a nice network for yourself where you can check in and compare notes with other people in the service.
0: That's great advice. Thank you so much for your time and for being a guest on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. If this is your first time listening to Women of the Military podcast, I encourage you to go back and listen to some of the other episodes on the podcast. There are so many episodes and stories of women who've served in the military who can inspire you at whatever stage of the journey you're in, joining, serving, leaving the military, or just learning about the women who have served in the military. If you want to support Women of the Military podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash women of the military and if you enjoyed women of the military podcast please leave a review on your favorite podcast app to help the podcast grow and reach more women who are considering military service